The scripture this morning is from the 16th chapter of Matthew, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Jeremiah or Elijah. Others still one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and then he strictly ordered them not to tell anyone that he was the messiah this is the word of the lord thanks be to god be seated please One of my favorite stories that a mentor of mine, Ray Vanderland, tells is about an ancient rabbi, probably in Jesus' day, uh, who is meditating so hard on the scriptures one day that he takes a wrong turn. And instead of going into the village where he is going to work, he ends up on another path that takes him straight to a Roman garrison. And then suddenly he is halted by a guard on top of the garrison who shouts down to him, Stop! What is your name? What are you doing here? And the rabbi gathered himself and in typical rabbinic fashion answered a question with a question. He said, how much do they pay you? And the guard said, they pay me two denarii a day. And the rabbi looked up and said, I will pay you twice that if you will follow me around every day and ask me those two questions. Those are great questions. Who are we? What are we doing here? And I hope over the last several weeks, as we've talked about being connected intimately to God, connected intimately to one another, and then connected in service to God's world, that you will come to understand deeply those answers. Who are you? You are a beloved daughter or a beloved son of God, a beloved child of God, loved unconditionally before you ever did anything. You are valuable and you're worthy. That's who you are. Now, what are you doing here? Well, what you're doing here is you are joining God. You are partnering with God and helping to make earth more like heaven. To, as we say, bring heaven to earth. Well, that's a pretty big deal. And you might ask, well, where on earth am I supposed to do this? And that's an important question. As I understand, they used to say in real estate, the three most important factors are always location, location, and location. So where is the location? Where am I supposed to be working with God to bring heaven to earth? Well, I wanted this morning to let Jesus answer that question for you because he does something very strange in the Gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter. He takes his disciples on a 32-mile field trip, walking. And they walk through the Hula Valley and and they go to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which you begin to notice geographical changes, interesting rock formations, uh, different foliage. And they come there and Jesus gives them what was probably a 10 or 15 minute lesson after a two or three day journey. He's taken them to Caesarea Philippi. Let me say a word about that. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was founded by one of Herod's sons, Herod Philip. 
Now, he was a Herod's son, but he wasn't near as smart as Herod. And so what he wanted to do to get in good with the, with the emperor in Rome is he thought he would name a town after him, which seemed a good idea. So he named this town Caesarea. Unfortunately, he'd already forgotten there was a town already named Caesarea on the Mediterranean in Israel. And so he had to backtrack and think real quick. And so he changed the name to Caesarea Philippi, uh, feeling like he could add his own name to it and, and two birds with one stone there. But what was interesting is Caesarea Philippi, though it could be considered in the land of Israel, was the most pagan area in Israel itself. It was a place of pagan worship, of pagan practical uh, practices. The cult of Pan uh, was headquartered there. And some of you may remember your mythology. Do you remember Pan? Pan was half man and half... Anybody? Goat, exactly. Half man, half goat. And so his worship was centered near, not the worship of the God and the Father of Jesus, but the worship of Pan was centered there in Caesarea of Philippi. And I, I can't, in mixed company, describe how Pan was worshipped, but it wasn't very good. Uh, let me just set the stage by telling you, some years ago, uh, my wife and I went on our honeymoon to New Orleans, and so some years later, we had our first child. Uh, he was almost three, so we went back to New Orleans, and we took him with us, and uh, we are walking down Bourbon Street in the daytime with our three-year-old, and as we are walking down Bourbon Street, uh, you may have been there, uh, there is a scantily clad woman at a bar on a swing, and she's swinging from the bar out to the street. Back to the bar, out to the street. Back to the bar, out to the street. My three-year-old's eyes got real big, and he looked up and said to us, I can't believe my eyes. <laughs> well, I assure you that that was extremely mild uh, compared to what was going on in Caesarea Philippi, and it was a place that no Jewish mother or father would ever want their sons or daughters to visit. And yet, Jesus marches his disciples right there in the midst of all, anything you can imagine that's disgusting, involving goats or men or women, it was there. And that's where Jesus has them. And then suddenly in the midst of all this, I assume there are, they are at some distance, of course, not participating in the frolicking. And, uh, and then Jesus asks this weird question, well, what are people saying about me? And then he looks and he says to them, now, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter gets the answer right. He says, well, you're the Messiah, the, the Son of living God. And Jesus says, you know, you're right, Peter, and I'll tell you, you wouldn't have gotten that if the Father in heaven had not given you the answer. And I want to say to you, Peter, that on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, what's interesting is that's a very important verse of Scripture, uh, maybe one of the most significant in all the Gospels. And for 2,000 years, there's been a lot of debate about just what is this location? What rock are we talking about? And, of course, one of the answers coming down, of course, from the long tradition of the Catholic Church is that the rock is Peter himself. And he's the first bishop of Rome, the first pope, hence the pope's authority. And even the Protestant pastors like Methodists like to, to trace their ordination all the way back through the Church of England and then hopping over a bridge to the Catholic Church back to Peter himself. There's a long tradition of that, and certainly it's possible. There's another possibility, though, is that the rock that Jesus is talking about is Peter's confession. And so he's saying, uh, you got it right. I am the Son of God. And, and every time somebody gets that right and that's confession, that's where, I, that, that's where my church will be. And there's a long history of looking at the verse like that. 
Also, more recently, a way of looking at the verse has been the revelation to Peter that he couldn't have gotten any other way about who Jesus is. And so the answer is, Jesus is built on places where it gets revealed as to who he is. And so when people finally get that revealed to them, there's the church. There's another possibility. And that is this. That the big stage, which is pretty big, it would go from where the pipes are on the organ to about the first pews here and just about almost as wide as the two exit doors on the the east uh, and the west. Uh, that was a place where, uh, where all the orgies celebrating Pan are celebrated. And it's a large, flat rock. And you'll never guess what the locals call this disgusting place. They call it the rock. And so Jesus, like any first century rabbi, doesn't talk in abstract theories and concepts and lecture with propositions. He takes an object and draws a lesson for uh, the students from the object and from the scripture. And so he's apparently pointing out this place, this stage, this flat rock, the rock, and says, there, that's where I want you to go. That's where I want my church built. And in this theory, which obviously is the one I hold, he's telling the church, do you want to know where you're supposed to be? You're supposed to be in the places that seem most broken to you. The places that seem most dysfunctional. The places where the hurt and the pain seem to be the most profound. That's where I want my church to be built. Now get out there. Now, there's some good news if that's the right interpretation. And the first bit of good news is you don't have to look very far to find places of brokenness. You don't have to look hard to find people battling illness. To find children who can't read or don't have enough food uh, in their stomach to study. Or or to find people, as Marsha talked about, that don't have a place to uh, sleep at night. You don't have to look far. You don't have to look far for people who sit inside rooms in, uh, in homes where no one ever comes to visit them. You don't have to look far for the brokenness. It's pretty close by. C.S. Lewis, shortly after World War II, made an observation that, of course, the people in Britain would have understood. He said, the world is itself enemy-occupied territory. There is a sense in which so much in the world does not run the way that God intends for the world to run. Those places are very close by. They're all around us. Years ago, I used to be in a pastor's group that would meet every quarter and a lot of the pastors in town, and, and one of them that was meeting with us uh, was Buckner Fanning. And it seemed like every third meeting, Buckner would say the same thing to us. He would say, and I quote, he would say, Jesus never told the world to go to church, but he told the church to go to the world. Now, I don't know if he made that up or if he got it from a theologian of long ago, but that's accurate. And so what happens in this real estate lesson is Jesus points at this piece called the rock, a piece where they could never imagine that any self-respecting person would ever go who was Jewish. And he was saying, that's where I want you. Go there to that place of brokenness and build my church. And the good news is we don't have to look far. And the better news is we don't have to worry about whether we're going to be successful or not because then Jesus went on to say, and I tell you, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Now, here's another interesting geography lesson. Next to this big, large, stage-like area called the rock was a huge opening. 
um, a large spring. Now, earth, a couple of earthquakes since that time, since the first century, have largely covered up this spring. But from this, um, this spring and this deep uh, opening uh, in the ground, Josephus tell us, tells us it was not unusual for gas to come from the earth uh, through, uh, through this place. And so the locals began to think that these were spirits coming from the underworld to our world to harass us or do whatever they were supposed to do, and then they turn around and go back. And so they coined that large opening. They called it the gates of hell. And so Jesus, in this object lesson, says, that's where I want you to build my church, and they won't stand against you. That is an extremely offensive-minded metaphor. But I think a lot of times in the church I've always interpreted it as like, well, we'll hold on. Jesus said the gates of hell won't beat us. But that's a defensive mindset. Jesus was like, you're going to go rattle those gates, and they won't be able to stand against you. It is an extremely aggressive metaphor. Now, pardon us if we can't help but make it a bit defensive. A friend of mine uh, studies churches all over North America. He was in town a few weeks ago. And he said this to a group of leaders at lunch. He said, in America today, it would be hard to overestimate the amount of anxiety that the average church feels. The average church looks around. They see maybe the pews aren't as full as they used to be. Where are the young people? Offering plate looks a little light. The news is not always good. Our reputation seems to get sullied by uh, the next uh, uh, either tragedy or act of malfeasance. And we begin to sort of want to withdraw and say, well, let's just hold on. Let's hold on, get behind these gates, and see if we can make it. That is understandable. That's just not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, get out there, rattle those gates, go to the very places that seem darkest and seem most opposed to what you've been taught all your life, and build the church. Go out there and love in those situations. And that's what our church is meant to be, I believe. Not a place that we retreat to. Not a fortress that we close the walls and close the gates. But more a launching pad. Or coming up on Pearl Harbor in a couple weeks, a carrier. One of the understandings I have about Pearl Harbor is uh, the very fortunate thing is they didn't bomb all the ships. They didn't get the carriers. They were out at sea. Carriers came back and allowed us to make a counter-offensive move within time. And that's who we are. Carrying the gospel, carrying the love of Christ, carrying people to the broken places. And there are setbacks for the church in America today. I, I don't deny that. There are, tr- there are struggles. There are some difficulties. But it has not affected our ability to launch And I hope you saw some of this last week. We are launching all over. We are launching in the prisons. A number of people in our church involved in Kairos ministry or in other uh, prison ministries. We're launching down at Haven for Hope. Or uh, a couple times a week, uh, people on our behalf are going and and working with people in recovery and, uh, and, and studying the Bible. And worshiping together. We're launching in the neighborhood around Asbury, our Asbury campus on San Pedro, a church that once saw no children for almost decades, now has at least 15 children there every Sunday being fed physically and spiritually. We are launching, and we're even launching across the water sometimes Africa, 
Haiti, Costa Rica, or even across the border in Mexico. This church is on the move, and that is as it should be. That's as I believe Jesus intended. So as we go, as we move toward wherever you see the brokenness, that we can go in community to get there. As we go there, I want you to remember, though, three things. First of all, always remember who you are. Uh, You probably got that lecture once or twice, or you're getting ready to go out on a date, and your parents might say to you before you left the door, don't forget who you are. Don't forget your family, your reputation. Don't forget who you are, but who you are is a beloved child of God. You're already loved. You're not going out there to help so that you can receive love. You're going out there with the overflow of love that is already yours and given to you. And don't forget who you are. You're a partner in this business venture with Jesus. You're a partner in in going uh, to this location. He says something really interesting. He said, you know, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven and you know and for centuries people have like argued about what that could mean and they they tried to do metaphysical and spiritual binding and loosing of all sorts and i'm not saying that's wrong but i will say in the first century what it meant was simply this to bind something meant that you ruled it was against god's law you can't do it to lose something meant that you ruled, that actually, even if it had been taught against earlier, you are now seeing that it is a part of God's plan. You are therefore given permission to do it. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is, look, when y'all make decisions, and you're trying to figure out what you can't do and what you can do, I want you to know we're on your side. We will honor the decisions that you have made. You are partners in this deal. So don't forget who you are. You're partners in this deal. You are empowered. Secondly, don't forget that you're not alone. You know, what's interesting is I used to always read this passage as Jesus telling Peter, you know, you're Peter, and on this rock, Peter, I want you to build your church. But that's not what he says at all. It's like, Peter, I want you, you're going to be building my church. I will be building my church, Jesus said. You're going to cooperate, but I'm going to build my church. We're going to win. Could be days, could be years be a long time. But know this, Jesus is much more interested in our efforts to bring light to dark places and healing to brokenness than even we are. Because this is his church. And this is his world. And that's what he wants. Then thirdly, I just want to give you a warning. You probably, some of you have been around long enough, you've actually heard me preach something similar before because I've done it twice during the years I've been here. I haven't done it in a few years and I'll tell you why. Every time, the first two times I preached this sermon, I would talk about going out to the gates of hell and rattling the cage of the evil one, and then all hell would break loose in the church for a couple weeks. Just weird stuff. Um, So what I want to tell you is, if someone came and attacked your house, they would probably expect resistance. If someone came and attacked one of our military uh, locations, they would probably expect resistance. When you're on the attack, expect resistance. And I'll tell you, well, then why are you preaching it again? Because we've already had enough hell the last few months that I figured, go for it. Yeah, things have been weird enough. I'm like, what else we got to lose? Let's go. Let's move. You can't win this one, evil. It's not in the cards for you to win. It's in the cards for us to win. And we go forth to wherever the brokenness is. John Ortberg uh, talks about 
in New England, there was a small town right on the coast. And because it was a rocky coast, uh, there were more than a few shipwrecks in the day a couple of centuries ago. So what the town did is they bounded together and they formed a life-saving society. And they would go out in their little boats and rescue the people uh, from the sunken ships and, and bring them in to safety. And the motto of what they called their life-saving society, this was their motto, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And they would risk themselves and go out. But over the years, as America grew and strengthened and uh, expanded, uh, the Coast Guard came into that area, and now the Coast Guard goes out and and does the rescuing. But still there's a meeting once a week of the life-saving society two centuries later. And they meet every week and they talk about life-saving and life-saving stories. And no one ever leaves the meeting room except to go home. I hope and pray that that will never be said about our church.